chapter 23. Beginning in verse 32. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Luke 23, verse 32 through verse 38. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, This is the king of the Jews. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your son's sake. Amen. When you miss the point, you miss the main point of something, you can draw all kinds of conclusions, many of which might be true in a certain sense or in many senses, but it, it, it does not get to the exact center of what was intended. There's a funny story that illustrates this, missing the point and how it gets you on the wrong path and you'll never arrive at the right conclusion. Told, I've heard it told by at least a couple of different preachers, so it's not certainly something that I found on my own. Sherlock Holmes and Watson were on a camping trip and uh, after a large meal, they were very tired, they fell asleep in uh, the forest in the middle of the night. Sherlock wakes up and he nudges Watson awake and he, he says, Watson, look up and tell me what you see. And Watson said, I see stars and stars, millions of stars. What does that tell you? Sherlock asked. He said, well, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies, potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Orologically, I observe it's about a quarter past three in the morning. Theologically, I see that God is all-powerful. We're small and insignificant in this vast universe. Meteorologically, I suspect that tomorrow we're going to have a beautiful day. Why, Sherlock? What does it tell you? And Sherlock remained silent for a few moments. He said, Watson, you fool, someone has stolen the tent. You see, if we miss the point of something... You're never going to arrive at the, the right conclusion. That's a funny story, but it illustrates something about the life of Jesus. Jesus has gone through the land of Israel, signs and 
wonders, showing people who he is, and showing them the the, the greater reality that lies beyond what he's been doing, the spiritual realities that he points to in himself, in his person, and in his work. But people have prized the sign, whether it be the, the bread and the fish, or the physical healing. They've prized the sign over the thing signified, that which it pointed to, salvation and eternal life. It's for that reason, that unbelief, that that is what brings really the account of the Gospel of Luke to the cross as people demand sign after sign and after sign. And when they don't get it, they become angry. And they come to the conclusion through their unbelief that Jesus is not the Christ. And so biblical faith is at the center of this passage. It's at the center of Luke's account of the cross. Biblical faith, believing in that which we do not see and that which we cannot perceive with our eyes or with our senses. The danger of unbelief, the danger of a lack of faith. All of those things are front and center for us as Luke tells us about our Savior being crucified. Unless we listen to the word of God and the truth of God that's declared to us, that's revealed to us, we stand in danger of missing the point. We may come to all kinds of observations and conclusions, but you're off on the wrong track. What is the point of Jesus' life? To point us to salvation from sin, to point us to his lordship and the life that he gives to us by faith. So we'll think about those things as we work through this passage. First, a suffering Messiah. Second, saving faith. And third, staying power, or the power to stay. Suffering Messiah, a saving faith, and staying power. First, a suffering Messiah. And that's what Luke wants to show us, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that the Messiah was to suffer, suffer for sin. In last week's passage, Jesus has reminded us of very important things. Remember, there are these professional mourners that are following Jesus, sort of crying out. And Jesus looks at them, he says, do not weep for me. And in that, he points forward to his resurrection, that this will be a death that is different than all of the other deaths. It's going to bring about new life. It's going to bring about resurrection. But he also says, weep for yourselves, and in that he is giving us a warning. Eternity awaits everyone, whether a blessed eternity or a cursed one. Jesus says, eternity awaits everyone, and you are to live your life in light of that. Are you ready for eternity? He's also, Jesus with his words, and also Luke in the way that he is crafting the account and the way that he is such a beautiful storyteller is painting pictures of redemption for us and also the Christian life. So a couple of things that have happened in recent passages, right? The uh, Simon of Cyrene following Jesus on the way of the cross. That's the picture of the Christian life that Jesus is before us. He is the author, the perfecter of our faith. We don't accomplish the forgiveness of our sins, but we're called to take up our cross and follow the Savior. Also the wonderful picture of Barabbas, the glorious exchange, the the vile sinner exchanged for the righteous one. Uh, The sinner goes free and Jesus goes to the cross. Other pictures that are emerging, 
One that will particularly come out next week will be the the picture of the, the criminals who are crucified on either side of Jesus. Luke has been this master storyteller and we're arriving now at the, the end of the Gospel of Luke. Some of you may say mercifully or at long last as your pastor has usually gone through in chunks of about 8 to 12 verses at a time. A blessed time, a blessed study of this book. And so it may surprise us that here when we arrive at the, the culmination of the Gospel of Luke, And knowing that Jesus has come to earth to suffer on the cross, to seek and to save the lost, Luke is very short on details here in this passage. In fact, to show us that Jesus is being crucified, what do we get? Four words. There they crucified him. Now, it's not as if we get those four words and Jesus is in the tomb. There are other things that will transpire uh, while Jesus is there on the cross. But... It's not an elaborate discussion of Jesus' reaction to everything that happens as the nails are pushed through his arms and legs. It's not a vivid account of the emotions that would have been swirling at this time. We don't get all of those kinds of details. And in fact, if you look through all of the Gospels, they are short on details on this, on this count. Why? Well, one reason may be that they're leaning on the knowledge that everyone would have of Roman crucifixion. It was a brutal death. It was unthinkable in its cruelty and in the kind of anguish that the one crucified would have to undergo. But there is another possibility, and that is that the gospel writers do not want us to overindulge in the physical aspects of the sufferings of Jesus, which are immense and unthinkable. Don't, they don't want us to overindulge in those things lest we lose sight of the deeper sufferings of Jesus. See, human suffering happens, and even Roman crucifixion happens to many, many, many people. But only Jesus... Only Jesus went to the cross to suffer the wrath of God for sin. The spiritual anguish that he is undergoing, that he has to experience as the second person of the Trinity, undergoing this separation from his Father, it's important that we do not lose sight of that aspect of the suffering. And so it's, it's muted in a bit, I think, for a couple of reasons that are very wise. But one of the, the main ones is that we do not lose sight of the spiritual suffering of Jesus. There, they crucified him. Yes, a brutal death. Yes, unthinkable. Yes, we mourn to think about our Savior and our Lord in this way. But we dare not forget his undergoing the wrath of God. He is, though, a suffering Messiah, and Luke wants to remind us of that, make sure that we understand that he is the one who has prophesied, that he is the one who has promised. He's doing what he was appointed to do. This is not some mistake. This is exactly why he came to earth. And so there are uh, three pictures here that Luke gives to us to show us that he's the suffering Messiah. First is that he was numbered with the transgressors. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. He's led to the the place called the skull with criminals. He's crucified with criminals. He was numbered with the transgressors. Fulfilling of prophecy. There are also a couple of pictures here from Psalm 22. We know that Jesus says on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the opening line of Psalm 22. Luke doesn't tell us that. 
in his gospel here in this passage, but he gives us two other things from Psalm 22. And the first is that the people around the cross are mocking Jesus. Luke focuses in on the leaders here, and to say that the, the, particularly the leaders who are sneering and mocking Jesus. I think a reason for that might be that Luke seems to, to, to show us again and again, or he, he wants us to imagine our place in the crowd. And here the crowd is beholding all of these things taking place as if Luke wants to prompt the thought in our minds, what is our place in that crowd? What would our response be? What will the reaction be of those who are there? Will they understand what has taken place, what has transpired? But Jesus is mocked. In Psalm 22, verse, verses 6 and 7, it says, I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Those who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. So that's another picture. And then the third, of course, is that Jesus' clothes are divided up by the casting of lots. Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This casting the lots for clothing, particularly in an honor and shame culture, is, is something that would have stripped someone of their dignity, of their honor. And that's what Roman crucifixion was. It was a a public execution meant to strip someone of their honor. It was a warning, a very effective warning in an honor and shame culture. Someone was shamed before their family and their friends as a warning. If you do this, if you are like this person and you try to uh, circumvent the government, if you try to arrange a revolution or something like that, this will be your fate. We'll rob you of your dignity. We will shame you and we will make sure that we show everyone who the true power is. But this dividing of of clothing, of garments, is also a way, while it does strip Jesus of of dignity and honor in the eyes of men, it also shows us that he's, he's undergoing the deepest part of our struggle as human beings. When Job is stripped of everything in his life, chapter one, he's lamenting, it's this, Shock! You, you read Job chapter 1 and it just kind of floors you with the realities that he experienced. And in chapter 1, what does Job say? Naked I entered this world. Naked shall I leave it. We come into this world with nothing completely dependent. We leave this world and we leave it all behind. Completely dependent. There are many differences in the way that people experience life on this earth. Some become rich. Many remain poor. Many are able to have all kinds of blessings and comforts. Many of them have none of those things. But ultimately, it all comes down to this same reality. Naked we entered. Naked we shall leave it. This is Jesus entering our frail condition. It's not just that the Son of God entered the world and entered history, which is an amazing thought. But it's that he became like us. It's that he suffered these things for us, came to earth as a man, came to earth, entered this world naked, he left this world or went through the pangs of death uh, with nothing. That is a wondrous thing indeed. But it also highlights for us the enormous unparalleled transgression of it all. This, to think that the, the Son of God 
the second person of the Trinity, is made to undergo this unjust death. There's a a pastor that I respect a lot. He said that Jesus being nailed to the cross, it's almost like in that moment there should be this nuclear explosion that consumes everyone in the area. You think of the Old Testament where people lost their lives for things that had to do with the worship of God and holy things. Um, Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6 The ark of God is being moved and one of the oxen stumbles and he reaches out, it touches the ark of God and he's struck dead. Nadab and Abihu, we're going to be considering that text tonight and how we ought to order the worship of God according to his word and his will, not according to our imaginations. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, offer up strange fire on the altar, they're immediately consumed. So if the ark of God, if the altar of God in the tabernacle or the temple, if these holy things are to be approached with such care, what of the second person of the Trinity? It's an amazing thought, isn't it? That in that moment, Jesus could be nailed to the cross and reality itself doesn't come undone. It's with that in mind that we think about the prayer of Jesus where he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus is not giving us here this proclamation of universal forgiveness. He's not saying that everyone who is there in the crowd is going to be forgiven eternally of all of their sin. It's an understanding of that word forgive. In a sense, Jesus is saying, Father, constrain your wrath. Don't do in this moment that for which reality cries out. This Holy One, who is nailed to the cross. You would think that it would all come undone in that moment. But Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Constrain your wrath. Stay your hand. And here's the key. So that your redemptive purposes, so that your purpose of redeeming and saving might be completed. So that it might be fulfilled. This is the long suffering of God. He is slow to anger. He is eager to save sinners. To imagine that he stays his hand while his beloved son is killed. Those who could save their children from execution in that moment, who wouldn't do it? Of course, the great mystery is that uh, the Lord could intervene. He doesn't, and that it is his great joy to give his son. It is his great joy uh, to offer him for the salvation of his people. These are the depths of love which we can never fully comprehend. That hymn that speaks of the work of Christ, but you can think about, uh, indeed, the, the love of the Father, too, that goes beyond words. But What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. O make me thine forever, should I fainting be. Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. What language, what, what words can capture what God has done in Christ? What language can capture what Christ does for us in the giving of himself and going all the way to the cross? This prayer is instructive for us. We thought, in recent weeks, we thought about forgiveness, Christian forgiveness, gospel forgiveness. And we thought about those tough situations where There is no reconciliation. This external reconciliation is a transaction that happens between parties. If if someone wrongs you or or, or does something unthinkable to you and then 
and then leaves your life forever, there's something that remains unreconciled. Jesus here shows us, though, that the disposition of forgiveness is so important. And Jesus says, Father, constrain your wrath, stay your hand, so that your saving purposes might be fulfilled. That's the prayer of the Christian. When we talk about suffering with Christ, talk about the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted, reviled, hated, scorned because of my name. Blessed are you. There's something about that that we, as we talked about last week, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, not in the sense that our work is atoning at all or that our work becomes that which makes us righteous it doesn't but sharing in the sufferings of Christ because as the people of God in this world our mentality is like Jesus our prayer is to be father stay your hand constrain your wrath as you look out you see the evil of this world The unthinkable blasphemies that go on the unthinkable evil that continues to be carried on in this world father stay your hand so that those whom you have appointed to eternal life, might be brought in so that you might save. There are those in the crowd that were going to believe in Jesus, that after the cross and the resurrection would have come to a realization that this Christ was the Son of God. He was Lord. And it's because in that moment, God stayed his hand. Right? He did not consume everyone for partaking in this unthinkable blasphemy. Forgive as you have been forgiven. See, Jesus isn't saying that everyone in this crowd is going to be fully reconciled to God. And not everyone in our life who wrongs us is going to have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we are called to have that disposition of forgiveness. Even while reconciliation, which is an external thing, is withheld. That's part of entering into the sufferings of Christ. Also, as we talked about this picture of saving faith. Saving faith is so important to understand in this passage. And it it really is pictured for us in the crowds. They behold what's going on, right? They're seeing, they're taking it all in. But are they perceiving what is really going on? Biblical faith uh, clings to the truth that what we see is not all that there is. What you see is not all that there is. There's a spiritual world that is not perceptible to the sense of sight or any of the senses. This problem of unbelief has been woven all throughout Luke, and he's bringing it to a head right here at the cross. Chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, their voice thunders from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son, God says, from heaven. The very next chapter, Satan calls that into question. He goes out to tempt Jesus, and he says, If you are the Son of God, then show it. Show it with a miracle. Show it with some kind of sign, some wondrous thing that will leave us all convinced that you really are the Son of God. And it's that spirit of unbelief that's woven throughout the gospel. The leaders of the religious establishment in Israel are plagued by this unbelief. Not believing in that which is declared about Jesus. And of course, the call of the gospel is, do you believe? Without seeing, do you believe what has been declared about Jesus Christ? See, biblical faith does not regard the visible world as a trick. It's not all a trick, the things that we see. 
Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the visible world is, is a copy of the eternal things. God has imprinted his character on all that he has made. And it's for that reason that biblical Christians, particularly Reformed Christians, have centered on this world as a good thing. There are wondrous and wonderful and good things that we have in this world that are, many of which are commonly shared by all. Knowledge and the love of friends and family. That which is visible can tell us about the glory of the invisible. God's eternal power is seen in the things that he has made, but it's not all that there is. And sometimes the visible world is not an accurate guide as to what's going on behind those things. Everyone's seeing Jesus crucified and they're saying, well, if this is the Son of God, if this is the Christ, then why is he suffering? If you are the Christ, if you are the Son of God, prove that you are. Show us in this moment. This world is not a trick, but sometimes it's not a proper guide. Sometimes your, your life, your world, it's not going to match up with what is promised to you in eternity. Eternal blessedness, joy, no crying, no weeping, no mourning, no pain. Sometimes life in this world, is not going to match up with all of those things. You need to remember that. Cling to biblical faith. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself. That verb save is very, very important in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, as he has gone through and healed people, Luke has used that verb most of the time. The verb to save, it's Greek word sozo. There's a, another word that would have worked fine if we're just talking about physical healing. It's a verb therapuo you know, therapeutic, therapeuo, to heal. But Luke has usually used this word to save. For instance, in chapter 8, where the woman grasps onto the tassels of Jesus, and she's got the flow of blood, and in faith reaches out, grasps onto those tassels, signifying his righteousness. And she is healed. She is saved. Jesus says, your faith has saved you. See, that, that physical sign was pointing to a deeper reality. She believed in the Lord, and she was saved eternally. She's not still with us. She died many, many, many years ago. But the eternal inheritance that God gave to her, that Christ gave to her, that was what was ultimate. See, the ultimate thing is being saved from sin. Being saved from sin. Heavenly life. Do you believe that, Christians? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the greatest problem facing human beings is that they are at enmity with God because of sin. Do you believe that it's greater than any physical affliction? Do you believe that it is greater than any material strife, than any earthly struggle, than any problem that comes your way in this often sad world? Do you believe that the greatest problem is that we are at enmity with God because of sin and we need to be reconciled to God through Christ? Luke is bringing that to the fore here as the problem of unbelief is plaguing those who are looking at Jesus, beholding it, coming to the wrong conclusion. 2 Corinthians 4. We look to the things not that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the unseen things are eternal. For we walk by faith, not by sight. They're plagued. These people who sneer at Jesus are plagued by unbelief. They're plagued as they idolize the, the sign over the things signified. They're plagued by worldliness and that they trust in the things that they see. 
If Jesus were to save himself by coming down from the cross, then they would believe in him, but that wouldn't be faith. That wouldn't be faith. Faith is confidence in the unseen. So they question, if you are the Christ, show it. It's the same thing that Satan does in the wilderness. So cling to biblical faith. Cling to biblical faith and that which is declared to you about Christ. The Roman soldiers also join in this. They say, if you are the king of the Jews, then show us. Save yourself. The irony is, and and all the gospel writers point this out, right? There's something inscribed above Jesus. They all point this out, very important to, in the gospels, and very important to the early church. And it's, it's this, it seems to be the only thing that was written about Jesus Christ in his life and in his ministry, that which hung above him as he was on the cross, which was meant to be something that mocked Jesus, but ironically, it was the exact truth about him. This is the king of the Jews. See, no matter what any individual Roman soldier, no matter what any Pharisee, no matter what any citizen of Jerusalem thought or believed about Jesus, it does not change the truth of who he is. And what anyone believes about Jesus in the world today, it does not change the truth of who he is. And that was to be the mission of the church, that it was to go through the world and in the demonstration of the spirit and of power to declare to the world that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, in whom the Father was well pleased and well pleased to give as a sacrifice for sin. Trust in his work for you. Between now and the end of your life and all the way till when Jesus comes back, God the Father is not going to make faith be something that is according to the seen things. It's always going to be confidence in the unseen. And so as Jesus, in this display of seeming weakness and shame, and mocked by others who said, save yourself, the irony, of course, is that he's saving others and that he doesn't save himself. He's saving All of us from our sin. Hebrews 11 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So as you behold this suffering Messiah, see the absolute necessity of saving faith and cling to him, cling to what has been revealed about him. This is God's son. And finally, just very shortly, the power to stay, staying power of Jesus. All of these calls for displaying the power of God. Save yourself if you're the beloved one of God. Save yourself if you're the Christ. Show us how powerful you are. It took, and this is the point, it took more power to stay on the cross than to come down. It took more power to stay than to come down. It was the power of his love. It was the power of the Father's love. Christ, of course, was not going to abandon his mission but truthfully, there, there is the fact that he knows that the power is within his grasp to take out everyone who stands against him, to come down from the cross. And was he going to do that? No. He knew what was at stake. He knew that he had to drink the wrath of God down to the dregs. But it took more power to stay on the cross than it did to come down because he knew the deeper reality. Do you know that reality? Are you placing your faith in what God reveals to you? Are you trusting in what God places before us in his word? Cling to Jesus. Persevere in faith. Stay strong in faith. 
This is the Christ of God. And let the redemption of Jesus shape the way that you live. In the way that we talked about that prayer of Jesus. Have that disposition of forgiveness. That readiness to enter into the sufferings of Christ. Pray that the wrath of God might be stayed until the last day. So that he might accomplish his saving purposes in this world. So that the fullness of God's chosen people might be brought in through the proclamation of his word and the gospel. We proclaim without apologizing, without hesitation that this is the king of the Jews. This is the Christ, the son of God, God's chosen one. We believe in him, we trust in him, we listen to him. We proclaim him as the way and the truth and the life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how great your love. How deep, how wide, how vast. We are humbled. To be forgiven by this work and to stand redeemed and to be able to confidently come before you. We thank you. We praise you for the work of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Sing in response how deep